very good evening to you. Welcome to uh, this event uh, this evening, held by British Government at LSE. I'm Tony Travers uh, from the LSE, and I'm chairing this evening's event. Uh, the book is, sorry, the event is to hold a public lecture about this book, which is called The Fourth Revolution, The Global Race to Reinvate the State, by John Micklethwaite and Adrian Wooldridge. Uh, John is the editor-in-chief of The Economist, and Adrian is the management editor and Schumpeter, right, the Schumpeter College uh, column at The Economist, Schumpeter College, so you have time. Um, I'll say just two or three words to kick the evening off before John and Adrian speak about the book. There will then be an opportunity for half an hour or so on also to uh, ask questions and discuss the themes raised by the book. It's a major new book about the state and the West's capacity to reinvent itself. Now, self-evidently, this is an issue, and not only in Britain. I mean, we, of course, many of us, and certainly my own uh, work is generally about Britain, but it's clearly a challenge in Britain and in other countries. Politicians compete, particularly in democracies, uh, to deliver a state, to put it crudely, to deliver a state uh, bigger than competitively they appear to be able to tax for it or indeed to manage it. So they're competing on two different fields and the offer comes out in a way that no longer quite matches in terms of providing a state uh, which they're prepared to tax for. And... This begs, begs the question of whether we could have a bigger, more imp- improved state, uh, but how would we do that if in the West we're not prepared to pay for it or not to prepare for, to pay for it at that scale? So we're then left in an endless struggle, and you can see this very clearly in this country, of efforts to deliver efficiencies, to reduce subsidies, and in the end, certainly in the British context, as I've said many times before, to deliver something that looks like Sweden or France's state Uh, but with America's taxes, and that's how it manifests itself in this country. But as I say, this is by no means unique to here and now. And the final issue, of course, that this raises is how do these older Western economies manage to compete with new and emerging industrial economies which have a very different conception of the state, often a much smaller state, and which may lead them over time to run a very different kind of economy in the longer term with a much, much smaller version of a state. Anyway, that's merely by way of introduction. What I'm going to do now is to hand over to John and to Adrian, who will speak for about half an hour, and then we'll have about the same amount of time or a little longer for questions. John. Thank you. Um, thank you all very much. Um, it's a particular delight to be here. The, the LSE, in different ways, appears um, in this book, which Adrian will come back to, and it's a particular delight to be introduced by Tony. Um, when you look down at the piece of paper in front of me, it says, Tony, Tony Travers, Director, British Government. Um, <laughs> I cannot think of many people who would not have preferred that to be the circumstance um, under which we were ruled. But it's sadly not true. What is true is that if you're any kind of journalist, and this is sadly a truism that The Economist, whenever we want to check anything about the British government or want any form of knowledge about it, fairly inevitably the words Travers and Tony appear with such monotony and frequency that as an editor you come up saying, is there anybody else? And the answer always comes back, no, there is, there, there is nobody else. Uh, we... I think the good place to start this book is with the subtitle, The Global Race to Reinvent the State. And 
I think a starting point in virtually any race that you're doing, any kind of contest you're doing, is the one thing you don't want to be in is a contest that you don't actually know you're in one. Um, if you think back to the days of British industry, um, all those people who competed imagining that British cars were everything that one needed to know when there were Japanese and ones further away, or even slightly more closely, um, if you look at Tesco versus Sainsbury, not quite noticing what was happening in other parts of the market with new arrivals. Why is there this contest for the state? I think another place to start is to look at the midterm elections, which have just taken place in America, and also to look forward in some ways to the by-election next week in Britain. And the common theme, I think, about this is that voters in both those circumstances will go off to vote, very, very evidently did, in their fury and anger of the midterms, with two great thoughts in their brain. The first is that they are fed up with government. They are fed up with their politicians. If you look at the approval ratings for virtually any organ of government, there's one of the Congress the other day which showed it down at 1%. <coughs> Many of them were down around 10%. You look at the membership of um, political parties. The Tory party used to be, I think, 3.1 million. Now it's down to 128,000. If that was a company, um, you would be run out of business on those numbers. The fury is there. The crossness, the anger, you can see it again and again in virtually every form of opinion poll. And yet at the same time, when I described it as a kind of apathetic anger, it's true. The apathy comes from the idea that people are convinced that nothing is going to change, that the state of affairs is going to continue. And you can see that both in terms of voters who either forget or don't bother to turn up to the polls because they don't think it's worth anything, but also in terms of do you think your country is heading the right direction or anything like that, people do not imagine things are going to change. And it's not just to do with the voters, it's also to do with the elites, to do with the politicians. Uh, Jean-Claude, uh, um, Mr. Juncker may not be the current new head of Europe, may not be everybody's idea of a visionary, but perhaps the one thing he said, which virtually every politician would mimic, is once he was asked during the Euro crisis what they should do. And he said, oh, we all know what we ought to do. We don't know how to get elected if we do it. And that is a feeling, I think, pretty much concurrent with all the people we see pretty much around the world. Every leader has the same problem. They, they sort of know roughly what they should do. The whole Euro crisis is a testimony to that. And yet they're terrified of doing it because they don't think voters will accept it. And it is that feeling of apathy and dejection alongside <coughs> the anger or that expectation that nothing will change that this book tries to challenge. Because what it says is that that is categorically wrong, that expectation that nothing will change when it comes to government. It is wrong because of history. Because if you look at those various revolutions in Western government, there has been a consistent series of changes in the way that the West developed government. Indeed, that is a reason why we have got to the place that we have. It is wrong also, I think, in terms of technology. If any of you here think that it is remotely likely that the same hurricanes and gales and winds of technological change which are swept through the private sector are really going to have no effect at all on the public sector. The public sector is really so different. 
then perhaps you might accept that technology finally won't have an effect on the public sector, but we firmly fit in the second category. And lastly, because most importantly of all, there is the opportunity to change. We think that there is a chance of having a much better, more direct government there, and that is the core of this book. But we're going to begin with the idea that the West has led the way through three revolutions, and that, or three and a half, the way we describe it. And there, I'm going to turn over to Adrian. If you go back to the year 1500, only a madman would have thought that the future of the world lay with the West. You might have thought that it lay with the Ottoman Empire. You might have thought that it lay with India. You probably would have thought that it lay with China. In 1500, there were three European cities which had a population of more than 300,000. London, Paris, and for some reason, Naples. Um, The population of the heavenly city, of the forbidden city in in China, was 300,000 people. 300,000 civil servants selected by rigorous examinations from an entire continent-sized country. Um, The largest encyclopedia in the world, until Wikipedia came along, was also compiled in China in that period. Um, At that time, Europe was really a blood-stained backwater. Um, The Thirty Years' War over religion, Thirty Years of War, uh, the Civil War in England, a higher proportion of the population died in the Civil War than died in the First World War. This was a bloody, backward time. Um, People fought huge wars over religion. They fought endless wars with marauding, deranged aristocrats wandering around the country. It was basically like, uh, like Game of Thrones. That's, that's, my, that's my summary of the, the Middle Ages, I think. I think. Um, and then what happens in Europe is that you get three great revolutions of state-making, which allow Europe first to pull ahead from the rest of the world and to keep pulling ahead ahead of the rest of the world. The first is the rise of the nation-state in the 16th and 17th century. This is the idea, basically, that the fundamental function of the state is to provide a public good, which is security. This is the work of Thomas Hobbes, who says that the state is Leviathan that must stop people from tearing each other apart. And that allows Europe, really, to bring its aristocrats under control, bring religious wars under control, establish the rule of law, and provide uh, a framework in which commerce can flourish. But Europe manages to combine this internal order with external conflict. In China, you have such a perfect society, such a perfect state, that it really subordinates everybody to its purposes and prevents any conflict. It's very inward-looking. So when China invents gunpowder, it uses it for fireworks. We, in Europe, in our great enlightenment, use it to blast people apart uh, with with cannons. When China discovers um, foreign trade, the emperor says, actually, this is going to pollute our culture. So in 1661, he orders everybody on the south coast to move 17 miles inland so they're not contaminated. When we discover the capacity to trade, we use it to trade with others, subordinate them, create great empires. Um, perhaps not a wonderful thing to do, but this combination of internal order and external competition between all the European countries for preeminence 
um, and the ability to project power abroad creates a very dynamic civilization which becomes the dominant civilization in the world, essentially, essentially because you've solved this public order problem. Which leads us to the second revolution in the um, late 18th and early 19th centuries. This is the liberal revolution, which basically says that states must be accountable, efficient, meritocratic, not quite democratic, but moving to some sort of accountability. This is a revolution which is often associated with the American Revolution, but let's face it, America was a pretty irrelevant place in those days, on the far corner of, uh, of civilization. Forget about that. It's often associated with France and the French Revolution, but, well, that led to bloodshed, tyranny, and look at France now. Now, the really interesting revolution that took place in that period, we argue in this book, is the revolution in the 19th century in Britain, which is the revolution of the philosophical radicals who basically take a state which is much too big, which is a rent-seeking machine, um, which is run by people like my co-author's ancestors who are basically just using it to create sinecures for themselves and subject it to the question of open competition and the question of efficiency. So what the British, British do, particularly with people like Gladstone, uh, liberal reformers, is to take a state which is raising about 80 million in taxes in 1816 and to reduce the tax burden to about 40 million by 1846, at the same time that they're constructing new institutions, constructing a police force, constructing some sort of welfare system, constructing some sort of educational system. In other words, they're providing more and more services, and they do that partly through efficiency, very largely through creating meritocratic mechanisms whereby people have to earn positions in the civil service on the basis of competence and on the basis of performance, and also, as I say, getting rid of this corruption and creating an efficient utilitarian government. And that's why we think that this is incredibly valuable to look at now, because in many ways we have similar problems. An outdated state, a rent-seeking state, a self-seeking state that isn't in tune with the economy being transformed by a very self-confident group of, uh, of, of radical utilitarian thinkers. I think that was a great period, this period of lean government liberalism. It's, a, it's when Britain really sets a model for the rest of the world. You get people in, in, in the United States looking at that as an example, right across Europe looking at it as, as an example. But you begin to get a pushback. In the late 19th century, you get people saying well, this isn't really compassionate enough. You're leaving people uneducated, poor, um, not looked after by the state. We need to have a bigger state to look after these people. Somebody like John Stuart Mill, the great advocate of the liberal state, begins to have second thoughts, says we must have a bigger state, uh, particularly for the reason of education. You also get people saying, actually, it's not very efficient to have this lean government state. Because you get, um, look at Germany. Germany's got high tariffs. It's investing a lot in schools. It's investing a lot in, in, in education. It's spending a lot of state money. It's creating a welfare system. And it's pulling ahead of us. And you get people like Lord George saying we can't run an A1 empire with a C3 population. We must invest in the people. So this leads to our third revolution, which is the revolution of the welfare state, the idea that you have to provide a minimum of welfare. It's a revolution at which this institution is right at the heart. Sidney and Beatrice Webb, the founders of Fabianism, also the founders of the London School of Economics, saying that we must have a national minimum. We must provide a state, not just because of compassion, 
compassion, I think, is not central to the web's view of the world, but also because of efficiency, it creates a more efficient state system. And that is the sort of state system which we've lived with most of our lives, this welfare state system which they create. The state gets bigger and bigger, more and more ambitious. The Labour government comes in, again under the influence of the webs, arguing that what we need to do is create a new Jerusalem. In the United States, you get somebody like Lyndon Johnson saying we must build the great society. Bigger and bigger ambitions for the state. The state must provide junior school education. It must provide university education. It must do all sorts of things that it hasn't done before. And for a long time, this expansive view of the state, I think, works extremely well. You have Harold Macmillan. You've never had it so good. You have the 30 glorious years in France. You have the the fantastic economic growth after the Second World War in Germany. Even Italy does quite well. Um, then, um, by the beginning, by the mid-1970s, this all begins to fall apart. Government, which has been such a powerful force, begins to contaminate everything that it touches. The war on poverty, poverty wins. The war in Vietnam, America loses. Um, the, the war on, in, on, on economic growth, stagflation takes over from, from, from Keynesian um, multiplier effects. Everything begins to be dragged down by an over-expanded state. And there's also, I think, a period, a sense of moral decline, moral degeneracy. And this moral degeneracy reaches the most appalling point in San Francisco in the late 1970s. In fact, in a sauna in San Francisco in the late 1970s, we see the most appalling acts of degradation. My co-author was part of that act of degradation, and he's now going to tell us about what happened. Actually, 1980, not no, I'm sorry. And the, uh, the, the, I was on my gap year prior to coming to another university, and I was travelling around America with somebody who's now, strangely, a major general. But for reasons that are odd and unconnected, we went to go and stay with a cousin of his who was in San Francisco, who was um, a, a person called Anthony Fisher, and he had made a lot of money out of chickens at one time. And we went to get say there as two, uh, I think, 17, 18-year-olds. And he took us <coughs> in his building. Somebody had built a sauna. He wanted to go and try it. So he took me and my friend and forced his friend, who was not uncoincidentally living almost next door to him, called Milton, to join us. He was a small, wiry man who we sat amongst the um, steam. And he began to pester us with questions. And he said, did we... No, Margaret Thatcher. No, we didn't. Uh, were we? Um, we knew she'd just come into power. Um, did we know about monetarism? No, not entirely. And he began to depict this world, and he began to say, "She will introduce education vouchers. She will privatise British Leyland, this huge car company, now unimaginable to many of the people here. She will privatise British Rail. She'll break up British Telecom." And he went through this sort of world. She would reverse the decline of Britain. And uh, we sat there, and it, he seemed increasingly deranged, basically, because from my perspective, having been to school in Yorkshire, where you had to get taught by candlelight during the miners' strike, the idea that Britain was going to change in such a dramatic way just seemed bonkers. And later that week, I went to go watch The Grateful Dead, which, again, might be too old for some people here. Uh, but nothing was half as psychedelic in terms of um, what was happening on the stage. And I think it was the Oakland 
baseball stadium than, 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 than what had appeared in that sauna. Um, it seemed far, far more hallucinogenic. The idea that Britain could change as dramatically. But Milton was Milton Friedman. And when I returned to England, you suddenly saw him on, on screen. You saw him beside Margaret Thatcher. You saw him appearing, asking questions. And that was the half-revolution of Reagan and Thatcher. Why do we call it a half-revolution? Well, on the one hand, it succeeded enormously in terms of rhetoric. Even now, politicians everywhere are not really able to say that big government, per se, is a wonderful thing. Even Barack Obama, even Ed Miliband, who's doing so well at the moment, um, <laughs> would not stand in front of you and say that government, big government, per se, is a good thing, in the same way as Lyndon Johnson would have done, or other people in the 60s. So there was a fundamental change in the way that people talked about government. Um, there was also a fundamental change in terms of taking government out of industry. You saw in the wave of privatisation, particularly actually through Thatcher more than Reagan. And yet, and yet there were very obviously limits to it. To begin with, they didn't take on many of the parts of the state. Thatcher dumped out of rows with the police, had to be dumped out of things to do with the health service too. You can look at her role in battling to reduce welfare. Well, she strove and she strove, and she managed to reduce in a decade. She achieved something really dramatic. She re- reduced British welfare spending all the way down from 22.9% of GDP, all the way down to 22.2% of GDP. And straight afterwards, it began to rise very rapidly. And indeed, that is the pattern, is that whatever Reagan and Thatcher managed to stop the growth of the state for a little bit, but then it took off gigantically. In fact, it went down. The people who really did more in some ways were, were Clinton and Blair, at least to begin with. But then straight afterwards, it really began to take off again under George W. Bush and Gordon Brown. And pretty much everywhere, the size of the state pushed up. And that is the world in which everyone, even the more elderly people in this room, we, we've all been living in a world of an ever-increasing state. And it's been an ever-increasing state not just in terms of all the numbers to do with GDP, or even cite those one way or the other. It's also been an ever-growing state in terms of regulation. Um, if you, and in terms of oversight, if you go to the flat where George Orwell wrote 1984, you will discover around there, I think there's 32 um, closed-circuit television cameras looking down on you in different ways. If you think about the versions of regulation in terms of the way that the permissions you need now, Adrian mentioned, and indeed the great founders of this place, the Webbs. Uh, Sidney Webb was the son of a hairdresser. And yet, I think even he would have been slightly surprised if he went to Florida to discover that in Florida you need to study for two years. You need to get a permit to cut hair, whatever his version of the Leviathan. It didn't quite extend to that. The idea that you also need two years to become an interior designer. Um, I don't think even Sydney, at his most madly statist, ever imagined that Leviathan was there to stop you from having um, clashing, clashing colour schemes in your sitting room. The level to which the state now interferes in all aspects of life is large. And there is a trope of the right to say, well, this is all to do with the left and expanding government. It's not. It's because both sides keep on expanding government. The right, the left, builds schools and hospitals. The right builds prisons and builds up secret services and the many aspects of that. And if you see a pointless regulation, it is, I would suggest suggest to you, just as likely to come because somebody at the Daily Mail or Fox News has howled that something must be done about paedophiles or terrorists or something like that, as it is to come from The Guardian or the BBC or The New York Times. 
Both sides have repeatedly built up government. There has been a continual push because voters, very much as Tony said, have only wanted more. And that has been the constant of our lives. We have become, I would argue, a bit like Augustus Gloop, the boy in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, who just wants ever more chocolate. That would be one way of introducing Adrian, but perhaps the other way (laughs) is to put yourself in the position of a young man in the sauna and a slightly deranged, this time mercifully not naked figure, appears to tell you why everything is about to change dramatically. And that seems a way in which one is possible to introduce Adrian. For a very, ever since the 1980s, people have been predicting a new revolution in government. Every politician seems to come in with a revolution in government in their backpack. Just remember Clinton and Al Gore, for example, talking about uh, the reinvention of government. Um, Tony Blair with similarly grand ideas about reinventing government. And it doesn't seem to have happened. Um, so the most constant question we get asked about this book is, why do you think this time is different? Why do you think something is going to be different this time? And we really do. We really do think that now we're going to see, we are seeing, we think, the, for a fourth revolution in government, which is as big and uh, as comparable to what happened with, uh, with the invention of the nation-state or the invention of the accountable liberal state. Um, one reason we think this is happening is because it has to, because the established order of things cannot go on. We had a huge shock in 2007 to 2008, obviously partly because of the bankers, but also partly because of the level of debt that has been built up in the system for so long. Uh, We live in a world in which um, the French have not balanced their budget since 1974. The Americans have balanced their budget three times since 1960, a world in which huge levels of debt have become an addiction. So the whole Keynesian notion that you had to spend a certain amount of public money during recessions to make up for the collapse of um, private spending has become something that's done all the time, an addiction. And I think that's not going to go on. I think the financial system is too fragile to sustain this. But I also think that we have a very important demographic change, which we're beginning to see, which is that the ratio of dependent people, of older people to younger people, is going up dramatically, particularly dramatically in Europe, but even dramatically in the United States with the retirement of the baby boom. So that sort of system of of building up ever bigger entitlements which you don't properly fund is not really sustainable. And I think we have a real necessity to change. Everybody in the United States, in Europe, is confronting that. But I think there's also a real possibility of change, um, of of creative change in the, in the economy, partly because there is a huge opportunity simply to do things better, to bring the public sector up to the sort of level of management that you see in the private sector. We have a huge system of vertical integration in the public sector, of everything being done by the state, by subsidiaries of the state, which has been abandoned in the private sector. The private sector basically contracts out as much as possible to competitive markets simply by adopting that sort of set of standards. 
uh, you would, I think, make significant improvements in efficiency. I think simply by globalising the way that you do things, by learning that you can learn from a whole range of countries rather than simply doing things internally, you can dramatically improve the management of the um, public sector. Um, Look around the world, look at the system of conditional cash transfers that you have in um, Brazil. Look at the system of hospital management that you have in um, India. I went to an extraordinary hospital run by a chap called Devi Shetty in Bangalore, who basically has reduced the cost of heart operations to about £2,000 from, I think, about £80,000 they are in the United States. And he's done this by f- applying Henry Ford's technique of division of labour, essentially, has very fine degrees of division of labour. So the surgeons just do exactly the thing that they're trained to do, and people who are not as well trained do lots of other things. Um, more people, more division of labour, economies of scale, and it's worked dramatically. He's now expanding that idea. He's moving to the Cayman Islands, so you can do a bit of gambling, then get a new heart, and go home, and you, and you end up quids in. Um, so basically, instead of looking inwards, thinking that we are the model, there are lots and lots of different examples of what you can do. So disintegrate these value chains, learn from global best practice. All of this is done routinely as a matter of course in the private sector. I think the public sector can do exactly the same sort of thing. Thirdly, and more optimistically even than this, is the technological revolution. We are living through a technological revolution at the moment which is of similar importance and similar size and scale to what the Victorians lived through with the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution saw a dramatic improvement of the productivity of the manufacturing sector. And we are living through, we are seeing now exactly the same sort of dramatic revolution of the productivity of the service sector. And that's basically what the public sector is. The public sector is a service sector. William Beaumont, a great economist, um, used to argue, still argues, he's still alive, he's still very vigorous actually, and he used to argue this paradox of the string quartet. He said that you need four people to play a string quartet. It will always be the case, and that means that the service sector, and particularly the public sector, will simply go on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the nature of um, personal service. But actually, if I can listen to a string quartet of a fairly good quality on my stereo system at home, it's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good, and I don't have to go out and go to the theatre, and I don't have to put up with the people or the coughing or all of that sort of stuff. In fact, I can listen to every single string quartet that's ever been recorded through Spotify for a pretty small fee. In other words, the productivity of the service sector, the capacity of these new machines to replicate it, to, to apply economies of scale, to apply productivity improving techniques to the, to the service sector is revolutionary. We are seeing, we are beginning to see it, and we will live through much more the application of these ideas to the education system, this idea of people standing on lecterns, giving lectures physically to groups of people. I think that will begin to fade. We will begin to have the access to the best lecturers in the world over the internet. We'll be able to... Um, study with the Khan Academy, study with all sorts of um, video systems which allow us to control the teaching, to go back, to go forward. The actual notion that teachers will always be involved, physical teachers will be involved, I think will begin to fade, which will, I think, make the system more productive. You'll be able to get more results with fewer people, and the people that you keep will be able to do the really important value-adding things. 
personal tuition and the rest of it. The same with the medical system. I think that we are beginning to move into a world in which we will be monitored all the time. We will all have various things attached to our bodies which will monitor our health. And instead of having the current model whereby you begin to break down, you go to the doctor, you live, you die, you know, you, you will instead be forewarned about what's going on. And this is, I think, you know, a year, two years away, we will see a dramatic revolution in our relationship with the whole medical establishment. Policing, you've seen a dramatic imp- reduction in crime um, essentially because of technology, not because of better policing, essentially because you are monitoring what's going on in the world, you're looking at what's going on in the world, you, ha- you have better alarm systems, better sensors, which tell you if, if, if things are going on. Also, the military, you have now... The military is probably the most labour-intensive part of the state. You have now in the United States 15,000 robots fighting for the American army. You have drones doing lots of the sorts of things that used to be done by people. In other words, you are having a much less labour-intensive state. So I think that we have huge opportunities to do more uh, with less. Um, And I think also we have an important cultural change. When Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were talking about cutting back the state, they were thinking of cutting back the trade unions, cutting back uh, corporatism, but they still had the notion that the police were good, that the national security state was good, that the state ought to be monitoring what's going on in people's bedrooms. Now I think we have a liberal revolution, which both the left and the right are increasingly agreeing on, that you can actually get the state out of a lot of personal issues. It's not the role of the state to do that. We can reduce the regulation provided by the state. We can, in other words, have a big grand bargain between the left which is culturally libertarian, and the right which wants to save money and create a consensus for a smaller state. But I I think, as well as all of these things, these pressures and possibilities, there's a new thing that's coming into this whole debate. Since about 1500, as I started off by saying, basically the only game in town has been the West, and the West has been able to dictate terms, and the West has been able to keep on expanding It hasn't been subjected to any competition. Now, what we're beginning to see is real competition coming from another part of the world, which will force us to change, even if we don't want to change. And John is going to outline what that competition is. Sorry, we'll stop quickly and have your your questions. But the the, the bit I wanted to describe quickly was a building on the outskirts of Shanghai, which actually we begin the book with, which is called the China Executive Leadership Academy at Pudong, known as CLAP or the cadre training school, as they call it, in Shanghai. What, what happens is you approach, and it looks very military, it has sort of barbed wire around the outskirts. You then go inside, and it feels a bit like Harvard, but Harvard as redesigned by Dr. No. It has a very large sort of red desk, much, much bigger than this building in the middle, and it has a sort of inkwell beside it, which is the main building, and then around it has lots of low dormitories where all the people come to study and this is for the people who are going to be provincial governors it's for the people who are going to become the ambassadors to places like this it is for people who are going to go and run the state-owned enterprise companies and behind it there is a very interesting idea the Chinese look at the West and they think 20 years ago we came we visited places London School of Economics and we learnt how to do capitalism we looked and we saw and we pulled the best ideas from Silicon Valley, from Wall Street, from the City of London, 
from Cambridge, from places that we thought were interesting and clever, and we went to go and look at management, we looked at economics, we pulled ideas out. Now we need to do the same to government. We need to change government fundamentally. We, we have an ideological thing that's done in the party school in Beijing. This place is going to be devoted to how to do government best. And so they send people all the way around the world to go look at things. They go look at Chile, they go look at the pensions there, they go look at Norway, Sweden, Singapore. The two places they don't really go to, other than for amusement, are Brussels <laughs> and Washington. And the reason why is because they see nothing of any value to take from that, other than lessons in how not to do things. <laughs> and it is interesting that the same group of people who would follow everything in the West there don't. And what is happening there, the place that the Chinese look at particularly, which I would point out, which I, just, I was in last week, is Singapore. And the reason why they do that is, yes, because they see some nice authoritarianism often much talked about, and yes, they can hear all the stuff which Lee Kuan Yew parrots about Asian values, but it's really just very simply, it's to do, it's utilitarian. Singapore basically delivers roughly twice as good a service as we do here, or America does, or God knows most of continental Europe does, for roughly half the cost. So what's, from their perspective, that would be better. And they keep on looking at places like that, and this revolution is going throughout the emerging world, just as Tony said. People are trying to build states, and they're trying to see where the best things are. Now, there are all sorts of... This, this book it makes a lot of criticisms about China and the many, many problems there and also the problems in Singapore. But what I think is true now is that there is a debate there. There is a battle, if you want, for the element. There is a competition. There is another system there, which if you're sitting in the emerging world at the moment, you look at the dysfunction in Washington, you look at the dysfunction in London or Brussels, you do seriously look at what is happening in China and imagine that's better. Who, who would rather be, would you rather have been a young poor person in India over the past 25 years or in China, which would you rather go on for out of democracy or autocracy? All sorts of problems to do with China, as I said, but there is a debate there. But fundamentally, the West, we think, is only really going to begin to answer the question if it begins to go back to the same things we talked about, to go back to Hobbes, to Mill, and ask the same question that they asked, what is the state for? What do we want the state to do? What is the sort of function of this thing which we've created, which got bigger and bigger and bigger, and still doesn't deliver what we want? And it is in that element of trying to start a debate about that, a debate which would be most obviously, most vigorously started by you all buying hundreds of copies of this book, but <laughs> even beyond that narrow, although glorious, aim, um, there is a fundamentally big point, actually, that... There is a debate to be had about these things, and it is one which the West badly needs to have. And it is one, for all the reasons that Adrian pointed out, we can do these things enormously better. And that is the point of this book. So thank you very much. <laughs> We're very, very happy to take your questions if you want to. Lady to sir. First of all, wonderful double act.
terrific, absolutely very entertaining. However, also very interesting. Um, two things that just come to mind. One is um, problems of employment with your technological revolutions getting rid of um, people in favour of robots and machinery and so on and so forth. Um, people need to work. It's part of human life that they do work. And um, at the moment, we, we actually want to provide jobs even if they're not doing very valuable things because we think that's a good idea. The second thing that comes to mind is the regimentation of lives in Singapore and parts of Asia, which are very productive, but um, the people there tend to lack originality and they're encouraged to be conformist and um, we believe in um, something more liberal and uh, we like spontaneity and enthusiasm and perhaps artistic qualities which are perhaps not going on in those places. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On the, I should, I'll take the first one and Adrian can do with conformity. Um, the, the, on the question of employ, employment, the, the, in terms of the changes, one half of these things, you know, it's just very simply about bringing things up to date. A lot of, many of you will have younger siblings who've just been, and maybe some people here, who, they just went on an enormously long summer holiday, which every educationist will tell you that school holidays everywhere in the summer are too long. People go away and then they forget all the things, or a portion of what they do, because we have too long summer holidays. Why do we have that? Because our school system is set by the agricultural time calendar, which was set in the 19th century. Too much of the state is stuck, as Adrian said, in the Henry Ford era, where it tried to do everything. Henry Ford used to own the fields on which grazed the sheep whose wool went into the car cover his cars. If the state tries to do everything itself, it's just as efficient as a bloated old company. And a lot of the state is still stuck, probably the most of it is still stuck roughly in the 1970s. It's stuck in that era where it was perfectly normal to arrive in Britain and have a choice in a Japanese car which worked and a British car that didn't. Now, if you arrive as a foreigner here, you can rent a car and you probably won't even bother to look because, like me going to America the other week, you just you know it's going to work. It may, someone's maybe a little bit better, otherwise may not. And that, the reason why is competition. And yet you look, and Tony will point this out as well, you look across the public sector, you see mind-numbing differences in terms of the productivity of identical areas, productivity of different bits, health districts right next door to other ones with identical populations in terms of wealth and stuff, identical spending, wildly different outcomes, schools the same. And all what's happening up is a revolution in people being able to look and see what things are different. You are right in terms of this revolution coming through services I think that is only just beginning, and there is, in a sense, I can't pretend anything else, this will cause a, a, a great deal of pain because the same sort of forces which hit manufacturing are beginning to hit services. And you could argue the two great debates that are going to go on is one which is to do with inequality and to do with the fact that what seems to be happening, you can see it most obviously in old people, is that what's happening is rich, well-educated people are working ever longer whilst poorer, less well-educated will be pushed out of jobs ever, ever, ever younger. And so there's already an effect happening there to do with inequality, partly because of these trends. So the two ones are one to do with inequality, but the other one is to do with reforming the state. If you have a smaller state, if you have a more directed state, which is able, by saving money at one end, or saving money by not spending money on giving um, 
Mick Jagger and me free bus passes, but actually spending it on remedial education <laughs> for people. Um, sadly, I'm not that old. But anyway, that, 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 there is more to be done than that. I'll let Adrian quickly answer about Singapore. No, no, no. I, 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 I completely agree about Singapore. It is a huge problem that they've, that they've got. And if you ask me which system I prefer, the democratic, liberal, freedom-loving West and, uh, or the regimented um, East, obviously I'm going to say the... Uh, the former. <laughs> but um, I, do, I do think that, you know, Bill Gates makes this point, that it's wonderful to have creative, imaginative people, but if they don't know the basics of mathematics, they don't know the basics of computer programming, they're not going to get a job. And I do think that um, we can be too self-indulgent, too self-congratulatory about our, our liberal ways. What's been happening, I think, in recent years is that the quality of democracy, the quality of liberal society has been... Degrading. It's been getting weaker and weaker and weaker, partly because we've got too lazy and self-indulgent, partly because we've over-expanded the state so that it does too many things, many of them badly. And the quality of authoritarian systems, China and Singapore in particular, um, has got gradually better and better and better at what they're doing. So the differential, our advantage over them, is reduced. And I think we need to make sure that um, the gap is widened and the way to widen the gap is to have this reinvention of the state because what we argue fundamentally in this book is that the global race to reinvent the state is not just about efficiency it's about competition between two ideals of the world one is a sort of an authoritarian ideal of the world one is a liberal democratic ideal of the world with all of this emphasis on creativity and imagination and, and popular participation but in order to save or to make sure that the right side wins we need actually to have a reformation and improvements in the quality of the state, or we'll lose by default. Hi, my name is Nina Hawabus. I'm from the Boston Consulting Group. And I would like to ask you, because you said that there is a time for discussion and debate, but at the same time... Um, Voters are in apathy. So, how to make this debate uh, burn up? Actually, can I can I chip in from the chair because I, I was thinking this something very similar myself. I mean, the in a sense, in a even if our state is to change and democratic developed states are to change, the way they have created themselves is to have systems and governments and elections and all the things which, in a sense, by implication, you're saying are impeding the effective or operational would certainly need to bring about change of a pretty radical kind to deliver the sort of world you're suggesting. So in the end, that's going to require the people to empower the politicians to want something, which almost by definition they're signalling they don't want at the moment. We get that question a lot. That there isn't if you look at the evidence, though, it's not entirely that way. It's possible to change in fairly dramatic ways. We mentioned India before. I'm not a particular fan of Mr Modi, but whatever he does, he does represent a change, an answer to the stultification of democracy there. You look at America, you look at all the problems, all the dysfunction of American government, and yet you had something in Simpson-Bowles, which Barack, Barack Obama is sitting there on his porch as an old man, he will regret two things. One is complicated to do with Syria and probably just annoy you. But the second is the Simpson-Bowles Commission. America gave over its entitlements and tax reform, all the big problems in American government, he gave to a bipartisan commission. They came back and they recommended 
a series of things. And Obama, to his eternal shame and almost certainly regret, did not back it. The Republicans were playing silly politics. There was a lot of other things going on. If he had backed it, which there was a serious consideration he might do, that would have caused the most amazing earthquake in terms of how American government works and where it goes. And so the idea that it's a very, very long way away I think is wrong. And the last thing, very simply, you run out of money. One of the countries we use in the book is Sweden. Sweden went state upwards 67% of GDP, and then it blew up, effectively. And the Swedes had to think what to do. And so what they did is they went back, they reformed public services, they particularly focused on something, and this is a great lesson for the left. They focused on the idea of what is the service for? Who's it targeted and they don't care about who delivered it. So they tried to get as good schools as possible, free schools for everyone, but they said they didn't mind using vouchers to do it because that would bring in more competition. Healthcare, they did the same thing. Have free healthcare but bring in private equity companies and they didn't mind doing that as long as they produce better healthcare cheaper and they turned over their entitlements to a commission. So there is, there is evidence out there that people can and will change if they can. I would argue. Hi, I'm Vivek. Uh, in your uh, comments, I heard <coughs> uh, you were recommending the Chinese and the Singapore model as a, a you know a progressive uh, way of government. And do you think that uh, a country run by a democratic strongman is a better Man. middle path? And uh, obviously, I'm coming from India, so I want your views on you know uh, what uh, what do you think about uh, the democratic governments run by people like Erdogan and Mr. Modi. Is that a better way to deliver the kind of government that you want? No, With no, the possibility of you know, throwing out people? We're very definitely not recommending the Chinese and the Singapore model. Um, but what we're recommending is to take them seriously and to not simply to dismiss them because they are, they've achieved extraordinary things in terms of economic growth for a long period of time. But they've also achieved and are achieving extraordinary things of, uh, in terms of government reform. They've moved into a, 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 a world of delivering better government services. And they've created a very fascinating, I think a very interesting model of autocracy. Most autocracies die because you get some old git who just goes on and on and on and on and gets crazier and crazier and crazier and then gives the job to his even more deranged children. And what they've said... Uh, is basically you get 10 years and then you're out. They've created a system of rotating elites, basically, um, with people getting long experience and then staying in the job for a certain amount of time and moving on. And that's a quite an interesting model. They would say that they get the best of rotating elites with the best of long-term thinking. Now, I think all of this is very dubious. There are all sorts of endless... We have endless examples of what's awful and wrong uh, about China, not least the fact that you spend a couple of days in Beijing and you virtually die. Um, but um, it's not like the Soviet Union. I mean, it's a much more serious challenge to the West. And this is going on at a time when the dysfunctional element of our government, the dysfunctional problems of democracy, have, um, have grown bigger. Now, we do argue very vigorously that there are examples of democracies reforming themselves. John pointed to the example of Sweden. Um, I think you might even point to the example now of California. California was the Greece of the United States. Now it's beginning to pull back. It's beginning to put uh, some more, sen more sensible reforms into place. Um, but no, we're not arguing for authoritarianism. What we're arguing for is a vigorous reform of democratic government precisely because democratic government 
embodies the sort of liberal pluralist values which we need to defend. Can I very quickly add one thing, which may answer other people's questions? Singapore, different from China, because it is, it, is it is a democracy, something which they're keen to remind people by the laws of libel, if you break that. Um, uh, but the second thing, actually, you look at the bits that Singapore... What, what are the things we think you should do? Well, look, look, at, look at what Singapore does. It does lots of things which we wouldn't dream of doing. It pays the people who run its civil service $2 million a year. Why? You have all these Republicans in America who sit there and moan. They say they, say they want small government. This is the, the right's big problem. They say they want no government at all. If you want no government, go to the Congo. It's not much fun. What, what they, what, if you want small government, it's the same as running an efficient company. You bring people in and you pay them. Look at education. What the Singaporeans do is they take teachers, they pay them lots of money, but they sack them if they're no good. They don't just appoint on the basis of how old you are, and they test people in exams. I, last week, I was actually in Singapore last week. I've been there for a bit. They sit there. The problem the lady introduced about what you do with people as they get older. They're thinking of allocating parts of their education budget to people when they get older because they realise there's a problem there. Now, none of those things are things that we couldn't do in the West. You know, you could deal with the problems. which the, 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 those, the, There's nothing ideological about that. So Singapore, I think, particularly, you have to ignore all the claptrap that... Lee Kuan Yew spouts about Asian values. And you have to look at what they actually do, the things which really make a difference. And that's largely to do with being very managerially efficient. And ignore the, and the stuff about authoritarian as well. Yes, they're not very good on chewing gum and all that sort of thing, but, but that's, there is another side. I think there are lots of other hands. If you don't mind. I'm not trying to be... You know. Do you think that... Can't wait for the microphone, thanks. Do you think that the revolution that you're advocating can be delivered by the modern nation states, the nation states as we know them now in the West. I mean, they're quite a recent historical phenomenon. Um, they're possibly transient. And do you think that just they've outgrown themselves? I mean, Britain 200 years ago had a population considerably smaller than that today, and so the infrastructure and the political system was designed for a smaller population. That's true in the United States. That's true in most European countries. Do you think that there's going to need to be a breaking down. You talk about Sweden, for example. Sweden's population is considerably smaller than that of Britain or France or America. Do you think that this model that you're advocating is going to require a change much more fundamental of the actual political system that we're operating in? Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I think if you look at dysfunctional systems, they tend to be systems that are pretty far divorced from ordinary people. So if you look at Washington politics very divorced from people. It is the most dysfunctional element in the American system. If you go down to more local politics, it tends to be much more innovative and much better at doing what it does. And if you look at the European Union, again, massive examples of ghastliness, rent-seeking incompetence and the rest of it. Um, that um, I think you do, um, I think there is truth in that, but I don't think that the, the nation state as a model will be surpassed. I think that what we need to do, though, is to give as much authority to lower levels, subsidiarity, local government, to mayors, uh, and the rest of it. Definitely the degree of centralization of government that we have in Britain is unsustainable. And actually, it's very interesting. If you go back to the Britain of the 19th century, obviously with a much, much smaller government, but it's also a system where you have much more vigorous cities, much more vigorous local authorities, a great deal being done at the local level. And we need absolutely to move back towards that model. So I think one of the 
you know, the problem, the paradox of, of democracy destroying itself, committing suicides. John Adams, the American president, said the trouble with democracy is it commits suicide. And we argue that the, the, the way to stop that is partly by creating certain rules to stop, uh, to, to sort of discipline democracy. So, for example, I think the idea that you can keep voting for more and more entitlements for yourself and impose the cost on future generations who don't have a vote... I think is not good. It's immoral. I think you need to set up various sorts of mechanisms to, to stop, um, you know, this perpetual uh, expansion of entitlements at other people's expense. Um, but I also think that you need to hand much more power down to local levels. I'm a great supporter of, of mayors uh, and more power to mayors in this country. As I say, you go to the United States for all the dysfunction of, of Washington. Lots of cities work incredibly well, are doing incredibly good, uh, innovative policies. And, you know, in California has done infinitely more to reform itself than Washington has done in the last few years. Uh, hi. Um, basically, so your argument is that the current system is ineffective and something will have to change and the revolution is coming, it's like very soon. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't there be a second option, sort of like the, the, the Japanese option? So instead of, instead of not continuing to be ineffective, you, you basically continue in the system and you can see that basically for all the talk of austerity that David Cameron has done, the deficit is still there, the debt is still growing. Actually, the debt was much lower before 2008, 40%, now it's 80 And also in America, as you can see, there's a gridlock, not much w willingness to change. So don't you think it's more likely that instead of revolution, you end up with a slow growth economy, deflation, uh, aging population. So basically, you, you end up with Japan. Don't you think that most, that's more likely than a revolution? Two, two things. One, one is um, when the home of economics is possibly the most profound comment ever made in economics by a man called Herb Stein. If something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And it strikes me that that is extremely... That just answers the basic question. It is unsustainable to keep borrowing more and more and more with a demographic problem ahead of it. It's not, you know, that's, you're going to look back in 20 years' time and say, who on earth were we kidding when we thought we could do that? In terms of Japan, yes, that's an example of sort of enhanced stagnation for a very long time, but they're starting to have to deal with it now. And that is a very homogenous, I suppose, culturally accepting tradition. You, continental Europe seems to be bent on the same experiment um, with a less homogenous um, and that, that, that is the problem of the Eurozone at this precise moment. Um, the, 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 I'm a passionate supporter of the European Union, in fact, but that is the problem, is the bet that you can just have continual stagnation, and that, that, I think that's a very difficult one to do. So, so I guess I a lady just, for that. Just add one subordinate clause to that, which is that this revolution is not just a top-down thing of politicians making decisions. It's also emerging from the bottom up simply because of the empowerment of consumers with all of these devices which allow them to consume lectures, which allow them to monitor their health. It's being driven by both state constraints on spending and, and by the capacity of, of people to, to run their lives better. Do you have a variety of very quick questions? You can um, I think a version of this question has already been asked, but I'll try again. What, what, what I found interesting in your description of previous revolutions is that before they happened something nasty had to happen with the social system, like um, something destructive, like years and years of war, etc. And with the last one, it was exactly the same. Uh, we had revolutions in some places, two world wars before it actually happened. 
what you're implying that we got wiser as a species. And this time round, we're actually re-engineering the thing before it blows up. So I think you've already been asked about the burning platform. My question is, really? <laughs> well, well, several things. One, you could end up, the, you, the Swedish version is a kind of burning platform, if you want to give the microphone someone else. Um, the Swedish version is a kind of version of the burning platform. We have got slightly smarter, is part of the answer. Nobody, I think, looking back, we read about the First World War, feels a terrible inclination to go through it again. Um, the, the, but there is, you know, there, there are several things Adrian already pointed out. There's the pressure from below, there is a sense of competition. Until very recently, we did not know how bad our schools were. You know, that's, that's a fact, because we didn't have things like the PISA thing. In, the, in America, you go there, people, both written about America a lot, people used to know that their schools weren't that great. Now they're able to look. And if you're in California, you can see how much worse your schools are than Massachusetts or whatever. But much more so, you can look at overseas. And even, I don't believe the Chinese numbers, but you, it's been obvious for over a decade that their schools are miles worse than the Singaporeans and the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Finns and all the Koreans. But now the Americans have got to face up the fact that their schools are worse than the Poles. You know, they, 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 they spend so much more money, give it to the teachers' unions, and they get dramatically worse results than places like Poland. It, once, what, it, the, as parents and people like that see that, they begin to militate for change. And it, sometimes it'd be an inspirational leader, sometimes it'd be the pressure from below, sometimes it'd be a crisis. Happened in Sweden, could well happen in parts of Europe. Then. Things do change. If you want an example of someone which is changing actually quite rapidly, or could be, is actually arguably Britain. You know, the state has suddenly stopped getting bigger here. And that's partly to do with, Tony will tell you, people, you know, councils sharing public loos and things like that. And it's, not, it's more on that level. But you look at what's happened in education in Britain. There, there is a kind of revolution happening there, one which people might not entirely agree with, but it's, a, it's certainly a dramatic experiment. Anyway, you want to, should we try and take two or three very quick ones? And then we'll, I think we'll probably call it to an end. Do you want to? Just uh, very quickly on that, on, on the education changes that you mentioned in, for example, Poland, that's been about um, re-qualifying or getting better teachers, not depersoning it, which I thought was the reform you were talking about. Bottom-up revolution sounds good, but in Britain, British voters consistently rejected localisation in the northeast, in Manchester, so much so that Osborne's now going to impose it on Manchester, whether they want it or not. I wondered whether perhaps the revolution is going to be top-down after all. Yeah, no, sorry, very good point. Yeah. Um, do you want to, do, there's a person just in front of you. Um, hi, uh, I'm Li, I'm from China, and I'm actually quite proud of, like, you know, uh, listening to people talking about China in that way. But uh, the thing, yeah, like, uh, the, the topic I want to bring up is about the democracy, because I'm not seeing democracy the same way where unlike which other people are saying democracy. I think democracy in the East and the West have like totally different meaning. And I don't believe in people like everybody voting in one election because can you imagine one point four billion Chinese people voting for one in one election, how much would it cost? <laughs> and how, how many T V campaign would people do? The economist, is, the economist is a socialist dictatorship yeah. where everyone is equal except yeah. I'm slightly um, more equal, so I'll give Adrian the right to... Yeah, I think that might... Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I don't think that being a big country and being a democracy are incompatible. I mean, the Indians have run an exceptionally successful democracy um, for a long time, and their voting actually is incredibly impressive and incredibly efficient and makes the voting actually in the United States uh, look very, very amateurish. It's amazing what they can do. You know, they might not be able to do very well in between the elections, but they do the elections really well. Um, the other thing, that, that was a joke, by the way, for any Indian speaker. Um, the other thing about um, the technology and education, I mean, I, I do think, I don't want to say that education is just about technology. There are obviously many, many other things that people matter, that the quality of teachers matter, but I do think that technology allows us to do certain things through machines, which people have had to do before, which is the transmission of large bodies of information. You can have your iPad um, helping you with your algebra. You can look at the Khan Academy. You can, Bill Gates gets his children to look at the, Gar- the Khan Academy and to, to, to help them with their, with their algebra. It's an incredibly powerful tool because you can regulate the speed. You can go back over things. You, it's very difficult to do that with, with, with teachers. And that does liberate the teachers to do the more unique value-added work. So I think man plus machine working together can improve the productivity of that sector. Um, on the issue of um, the, um, the, 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 you know, in some ways on the mayor's, you sometimes have to force people to be free. <laughs> Take one from over here. They haven't had many questions over here. They haven't had many questions. Hi, John Adrian. Uh, I'm from Hong Kong, and I've been looking, watching out for a key word in your speech, which I haven't spoken any. The key word is trust. I think that... Um, uh, you've mentioned uh, Singapore and Hong Kong. Uh, okay, Singapore in this case. And, uh, I think both in Singapore and Hong Kong, in both places, uh, people have lost trust, are getting to lose the trust in the government. You see in Singapore the, 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 the falling popularity or the voting rates of the establishment party, as well as the people in Hong Kong, they no longer trust the government. That's why they're protesting. Even in, uh, U- even in the US and the European, I think they no longer trust the politicians. That's why they don't go to vote. I think in this case, you haven't addressed the trust issue. That means the, pe- the politicians can break their promises and get away with nothing. Just like Mr. Barack Obama, he promises to shut down the Guantanamo, and he eats his word. And look, does he get punished? And I think the key word here is the politicians are no longer trusted. And I wonder what is your... I'll try, I'll try, try and answer that quickly. Your... your Hong Kong, absolutely right. The, the, the Chinese system of putting a sort of second-rate businessman in charge of um, China, Hong Kong doesn't seem to me a particularly useful version of government anywhere. Um, the, the, and in many ways, it's survived despite it. I would argue Singaporeans, you're right. It's the levels of satisfaction with government have gone. People are getting cross about things like immigration. I, I think they will still, despite being the enlightened democracy that we all know it is, because... You tend to pay large fines, whatever you say it isn't. Um, uh, they they um, they would still, I think, probably win about eighty seats out of the hundred seat legislatures. I don't see. I, I, and actually, fundamentally, I think there is still quite a lot of trust in, in Singapore in terms of the way it's run. I do think it's worth saying, stressing on China, and it goes back to the previous um, gentleman's question, is on the, the issue of China. There is the, the bits where I see the frustration with. The government of China, just having been there last week, is you look at the Weibo system, you look at the, the, the system down, people are getting very, very cross, not about big human rights, but they are getting really cross about that. They think you need bribes to get into schools, it's health care, it's the basic 
standard of people, of living standard. They're complaining about the same things that the rest of us do. And that does, from a democratic point of view, give me some hope. And if you look at problems like inequality, one of the numbers we quote in the book, you look at Congress, we've been very, very rude about the American government. You look at the, the numbers now, recently updated, uh, the, the, the top 50 people in Congress are worth a colossal um, $1.6 billion, and huge outrage in America when that was announced. How could they be so rich? Um, the 50 richest people in the National People's Congress in China are worth $96 billion. Um, that either implies they are 70 times better um, more efficient, or the, there is some degree of graft that goes on in China, and that's just the public numbers. Interestingly, the Americans get rich by marrying people, and the Chinese by nicking it. I know you could argue which is best. Um, there's a lady here. Um, so, so throughout your talk, you, you mentioned about how the uh, public sector could learn or, or emulate, for want of a better word, or from the private sector. Now, of course, the private sector doesn't work at the national level. It doesn't work at the level of the nation. nation of, 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 well, typically, you talk about government, you're talking about national government. It works globally, not just large businesses, but increasingly smaller businesses, and also individuals increasingly live across national boundaries, they live globally. So I think there's a fundamental sort of underlying question here. Um, when we talk about reinventing the state in this global day and age, does it actually make sense to talk about it from a national government perspective? Is, is this something that you consider at, at some point in, in the book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, one of the problems with government is it has been very parochial. It's always looked inwards for examples of good practice. It's always consulted with people internally. Um, and increasingly, I think it needs to stop doing that, partly because there are very, very good ideas being generated all around the world, not only right across Europe and across the United States, but um, in the, increasingly in the emerging world. So just as business is almost instinctively global, in the way it thinks about what it should be doing. I think that the, the state ought to be instinctively global because the idea that wisdom is all in the United States or all in Britain or all in the London School of Economics I think is um, no, longer, um, no longer the case. Um, so yes, we ought to have bigger reference points. I don't think that means we need to get rid of the nation state because the nation state is a way in which a community of people uh, of politicians can be held accountable to uh, their electorate. Um, and I think big units, as we heard before, we need to get away from bigger and bigger units. We need to be breaking power down. But also we need to be looking right across the world. An interesting idea, um, I think, that has been floated is having a global parliament of mayors, whereby mayors of cities meet all around the world and exchange ideas. And I think that's you know, it might be a, a bean feast and a, a freebie for them, but it might actually genuinely circulate some interesting ideas, and I think they're probably more representative of their people than these characters who turn up at the United Nations. Okay, you're going to... Should we do one more? Okay, one more round, yeah. There was a guy there who disenfranchised. I promise this was the last question. Um, so in the last 20 years, some of the most dynamic economies in the world have obviously been countries like China and Singapore, where the state has been heavily involved in that process of economic growth through things like um, state-owned enterprises. Similarly, you're arguing that um, the British state should involve the private sector more in its own enterprises with things like public-private partnerships. Does the fourth revolution constitute a blurring of the lines between the public and the private sector? Uh, yes. 
<laughs> on the whole, I mean, it does we know we do tend to? Get, there are all sorts of examples of privatisation gone wrong, um, and yes, there are some examples of, of state um, sort of governed industry doing quite well at particular stages. Um, I think most many of the examples of privatisation gone wrong are just simply botched. Example: I don't, I think anyone, even even those around Ed Miliband, particularly want to go back to the sort of world which I witnessed prior to that sauna, where, where the government really did control the commanding heights. I think that on the whole, you look around the world, there is far more room actually for privatisation. You look at the amount of land and property that governments own pretty much everywhere, which could be much better directed in other areas. You look at the way, as Adrian was saying, about the supplier-provider split. That, that still is pretty much endemic rather the, the, the state goes back to that as I said the Henry Ford thing it tries to do everything itself and it often doesn't do it that well so on the whole Adrian might want to disagree but on the whole I, th- I think we are still on that side and it's partly to do there are two great things about reforming the state one is really simple one is can you manage things better and there there's a sort of problem that, that, that most of that should be an apolitical thing if you can do things better I use the example of Singapore and te- you know, what you do about teachers. Surely that makes sense everywhere. You can pay them more, judge them. If they're good, promote them. If they're bad, get rid of them. And that's what you do in any other business. That, but, but you could say it like that. It sounds very apolitical. If you're Ed Miliband or Barack Obama, you have an immediate problem because you have all the public sector workers who've got public sector unions who have put you in power, probably more than anybody else. So it's not immediately apolitical. You have the problems on the right, which crony capitalism we talked about earlier in the night. You know that that's a huge problem on the right. So it's not both sides have problems, but that, that's one bit. The second side is decide. Our argument is decide what you want the state to do, because if you want the state to do things well, it has to be like everything else. It has to concentrate on the things which you're going to be good at, and that's the reason why we, as the first argument, we we think everyone should do as part of modernisation. Second argument about what. What do you think the state should do? That's where we come out as, as liberals in the old sense. Is we, would, we would prefer a small state because we think that's, that's what individuals require and what, we, and what we want. Anyway, we'll now hand over to Tony to tell us why we're wrong. OK, well, no, before you just sit down, just one final question. I mean, I you perfectly prompted it. The state today in the UK is about 43% of GDP, and if George Osborne gets his heart's desire, uh, it would shrink to about 37%, at which point the deficit would be zero, and then there'd be years of trying to pay down the debt. In such a world, I mean, in the world, the smaller state world that you're envisaging, and I realise it's not only about public expenditure, where do you think it would sort of end up in a sort of competitive, realistic version of a state, as a, roughly as a share of the economy? It has been up to nearly 50, now down to 43, it's going to 37. Where do you think just a sort of broad order of magnitude it might end up? <laughs> I think hard to get below about 37 for, for, for some period of time. Okay. I'm much... I I do want to see a smaller state, but I'm much more concerned that it should be sort of efficient and modern and um, uh, and well-run. You know, so um, you know the the, the revolution that really intrigues me is what happened in Sweden, which didn't go to being a sort of libertarian state at all, but it went to being a state which was which was very balanced and had a you know long-term sustainability. Um, If you look at America, which has got a smaller state. 
it's got all sorts of dysfunctional mm. uh, governments. So I'm much more concerned about balanced budgets, long-term sustainability. So I don't mind having at least a pause for a while, 37%. Yeah, as the population ages, I think it's going to be hard to push it much down. But, uh, Very quickly, on the, sure. on, the, you know, to use, on the other side of the counter, you, you look at America. America claims to have this free market in, in healthcare, which is anything but by the time you take in all the different ways in which state subsidies are largely distributed to the very rich through health not, not just the very rich, just the rich generally, through healthcare plans which are tax deductible, which is another way of state spending. And in this book we argue you, know, you, you would get a better health service, which we all attack and, and have problems The health service here is a more efficient system. America spends more money, more public money as a, as a portion of GDP on its rather lousy public health care than we do and it doesn't cover everybody and so that, that, that there are some cases in this book where we argue that what one might regard as a left-wing answer is actually a more efficient and cheaper answer yeah. okay all right well look i'd just like to uh, thank john and adrian um, uh, the great thing about writing a book of this kind and talking about so many countries and referring to them by name is, of course, the audience has at least somebody from each of the countries yes. concerned here at the LSE, which is great. Um, the only other thing, apart from a final thank you, is to say that there is a table, a groaning table of books, and, and John did mention this strangely earlier on, uh, which the authors will happily get to in a moment, uh, if you give them a second or two, and should you wish to buy a copy of their book, or ten, they will doubtless sign them as well with any inscription you so desire. So I'd thank, like to thank all of you for coming this evening, and particularly I'd like to thank John, thank John and Adrian for coming to the school and telling us about the contents of their excellent book. Thank you both.